Good evening, everybody. This is Giandra LaBeouf, and we are here for the Shy After Show. We are fresh off of Episode 2, airing tonight on Showtime of the Shy, created by Lena Waze, executive produced by Common, and our characters continue to pick up on the on the on the momentum that they had after the first episode, wasting no time getting started and wasting no time in week two, season two, season one, episode two, keeping the action going. Tonight's episode is titled Ali, and we get to see a little bit more about our characters. We get to learn a little bit about them, a little bit more. We're starting to see more of their backstory unfold, how their lives are intertwined. In addition, we get to see the different elements of what's happening around them outside of the incident with the murders of Jason and Kuji that have uh, currently have them all intertwined. We see the the social dynamic of the young people, the young teens. <clears throat> Excuse me. We see the social dynamic of what Ronnie has going on outside of the murder and with Jason's mother, Tracy. We get to learn a little bit more about Brandon and his world and his mother and his wife. And the police are brought in as prominent figures in this episode as well. Once again, I'm your girl, Giandra LaBeouf writer for Black Sports Online, creator of Bad Culture TV. Thank you for joining me again this and every Sunday night for the next 10 weeks or if there's a break, however long the shy is on this season. Before we get started talking about tonight's show, I want to give a shout out to our sponsor, Undeterred.com. Undeterred is such a cool company that's creating some really fantastic signature statement making tea. So if you want to go over to undeterred.bigcartel.com, go and check out their selection of statement making teas. Are you undeterred? Are you persevering despite setbacks? Definitely visit undeterred.bigcartel.com and check out what they have for sale over there. You definitely won't be disappointed. I have a couple. If you follow me on Instagram, you've probably seen some of their wares on my Instagram. Excuse me, as with everybody, it seems, in California, the flu is still going around. Your girl is finally on the tail end of it. But, hey, enough about that. Let's talk about the shot. So we get kicked off with tonight's episode. We look at young Emmett. For those of you, you know, we're still learning the character's name. Emmett is a little cute young guy who's got all the ladies. And as you know, in episode one, he was uh, his young son, his infant son, was dropped on his doorstep by the son's mother after he claimed, oh, he might not be the father. She brought proof that he was the clear father and left him there. So now he's struggling with the rigors of fatherhood and being a primary caregiver and just trying to figure out where this is going to fit in his life. These will be defining moments for, you know, most young men, these moments either make them abandon their children or it defines them into... excuse me, a greater human being. And we're not sure yet as the episode opens what path Emmett is going to take in fatherhood and choosing what he's going to do. So as uh, I'll go through what happened in the episode as it happened, and we'll find out what happens to Emmett. Swinging back to Brandon. Brandon, of course, is Jason Mitchell's character, who is the budding young chef whose brother Kuji has been murdered. Kuji, of course, played by Joaquin Guillory with the big curly hair. And he's just going through the struggles, the depression of knowing that, one, that his young brother's life has been taken in what seems to be some senseless violence, and two, 
struggling with the knowledge that he knows who is the killer after young Kevin told him last. We pointed out that Ronnie was the killer. Swinging over to Aunt Ronnie, I guess you would say the episode opening is like a <clears throat> a chance for us to pick up with our characters, refresh our memory, who they are, get to learn their names. Because as we get to learn their names over the course of the season, then they become more than just people on the screen. We feel like we become intertwined and uh, have a, a window into looking what's happening in their lives. So catching up with our primary characters in the first episode, Ronnie played expertly by Natara Guma Umbanu. I want to make sure I have his name right. Natari Guma Umbaho Uwine. I hope I'm saying that right. Who is expertly playing in the emotion of Ronnie as a man who's been just weathered over time. Maybe hasn't made the best life choices over time, but still has a good heart. And the struggles that he's going through now, knowing that he killed a young man, but at the same time feeling some type of relief that he finally after messing up so many things in his life that he was able to do at least this right. <clears throat> so as he and Jason, who's the first slain young man that Jaging Killer Guillory, who plays Kuji, was suspected of killing, he and Tracy are kind of commiserating their loss. Of course, we we know that Ronnie wasn't Jason's real father, but he was in his life with Tracy, and they go visit a memorial that's been set up to honor Jason, uh, a mural in the neighborhood. As we learn more about Jason, we learn that he, too, was a good kid. He didn't have any real street connections. He was an athlete, but we still don't know what the circumstances are that brought him to where he was murdered at that time. And this intersection of these two young people, you have... Kuji, who, you know, might have a little, little, few little street things happen to him, but nothing major. A young life gone that could have had so much promise. And young Jason, who was a stellar athlete, who was trying to get his uh, ticket out of the hood via, via sports. And we don't know what led to this moment where, why Jason was there. We know why Kuji was there. He's just feeding a dog, just being a boy, and was in the wrong place at the wrong time and seen by the wrong people. And, you know, along with that, before we talk on the episode, I live here in Los Angeles, South Central Los Angeles, and I drove past Western and Manchester today, and there's a street vendor. If you come around the hood, you know there's always somebody selling T-shirts on every corner. And one thing that I saw on the corner was there was somebody selling shirts that said, stop snitching. And we know that's been a long premise of the hood, that you aren't supposed to snitch on things you see. And as we tie it in with this episode of The Shy, here we have an instance where <clears throat> snitching led to the death of the wrong person. You know, there's always been the stop snitching and let people handle their own business. And then you have this instance where a crew of people selling drugs snitched on Kuji. Kuji wasn't even the person that did the murder, but he just happened to be there at the wrong time, kind of body robbing when he took the shoes and the jewelry and things like that. But he didn't commit the murder. So that's when snitching goes wrong. And then there's when snitching goes right, when an innocent person's life is changing has been changed or affected, as we will discuss later on in the episode when there's a conversation held, had by Jason and young Kevin about Ronnie and whether they should snitch, whether they should go to the police, whether they should take matters in their own hands. So this whole snitching thing is kind of a, a, a very, it's a strange, like a, 
like a scale, like the scales of justice, how they can teeter one way or the other. Do you snitch and hope for a good outcome? Do you not snitch and you watch people suffer? It's just, what do you do? Again, here's that question that plagued all of first episode. What would you do in the situation? So as the episode goes on, we catch up. We switch now to our young team. Speaking of Kevin, we switch over to the school, which is the primary grounds for our youngsters led by our young protagonist, Kevin. And now he's in fear. Now that the reality has set in that he's seen this murder and he's told somebody about it, the reality is starting to set in that he probably should be in fear for his life because he has, in fact, snitched. Even if he snitched to a person who will likely, in his experience, with other people from their immediate surroundings, would likely take matters into their own hands, he's still scared. He knows the man is out there. He knows that the man saw him, see, saw him doing the killing, so he doesn't know what to do. At the same time, he's trying to live life as a normal teen, preteen, go to school, vie for the affections of the young girl that he likes. So he's being thrust into maturity at such an early time in his life, which is supposed to be some of the most precious and developmental months of his life. But instead, now he has this weighing on his conscience. And then finally, we catch up with the cops that have been introduced to us to kind of oversee and investigate the murders of Jason and of Kuji. We have a good, clear cop, clear, good cop, bad cop element. We've got Cruz, who's played by Armando Resco, who is painted as our our good cop, if you want to call him that. And good in the sense that he knows who his, and he's in the sense that he knows the neighborhood, he knows the people, who he knows who's involved, and he knows the inner workings of the neighborhood and the people in it. And then at the same time, you have the bad cop who paints all characters the same way. Everybody, every perp smells the same. Every murder is the same. He just chalks it up to another day in the hood. He's become desensitized to what's happening after working five years in gangs and seeing every type of murder imaginable. And that's why he's painted sort of as the bad cop. Who knows? As time goes on, we might see one might not be as good and one might not be as bad. But this is our first intro to really seeing the cops interact with the people. Fast forward to our other character, Jason's mother, who is just drowning her sorrow. We saw that she was angry. She doesn't like her son. She doesn't like her son's wife, her son Brandon's wife. She's struggling in addiction. She's just drowning her sorrows in alcohol, and it's, it's just sad to watch. And still not re- really taking any accountability at what part she played in Kuji's murder, but at the same time, maybe that's why she's turning to alcohol to drown her sorrows and, and and reflect on what she was doing in her motherhood that had her young boy out there on the streets and why she didn't do more to protect him. Instead, you know, she's projecting those issues on her son, Brandon, but I think the mirror is being torn towards her and that's why she's drowning her sorrows in a bar. She can't stand being at home alone and that's what we are. So flashing back to Ronnie Ronnie is trying to walk through his day-to-day life with the knowledge that he has killed a young boy. At the same time, while he feels like he's vindicated this woman that he loves and the, the boy that he calls his son, there still has to be some sort of guilt that's weighing on him. 
we find out that he is a soft person, that he has a soft spot. As we get to know a little bit more about him, he's no cold-blooded killer. He's just that neighborhood character that everybody knows. He probably messes up from time to time. He never really held a job down, probably got involved with some nonsense as a young guy, probably easily led, always was in the mix of something he shouldn't have to, but was never the kingpin or the leader. He just was always the dumb one with heart that got caught up. We follow along as he goes and visits his grandmother, who is in some type of assisted living, but as her age has advanced, she's become very ornery and very upset, and everything is makes her mad and pisses her off. And we all have an elder parent or a grandparent who lives those sort of things and lives that sort of life where everything is agitating to them. So that is where he is at, trying to find this balance of loving Tracy, loving his grandmother, carrying this guilt on his heart, he needs money. He knows if he wants to stay with Tracy, he needs money. He's not really in a position where he can get a job and settle into that American dream. So it's just it's crazy to see how he's going to sleepwalk through this. It's like he wants better for his life, but he isn't quite sure how to get it. And he's lived so long in the streets and doing the things that he's always done. It's, it's almost sad to watch him find that, trying to find that struggle and wanting to be part of that that everyday life and that American dream and that family and the woman in the house, things that have eluded him for for some time. So switching back, we're flipping back and forth. I think that these early episodes, we will see a lot of switching from character to character to character because we have to build upon the fact that these are all brand new characters to us. This is the first season, second episode. So we're going to spend a lot of time seeing bits and pieces and snapshots of each of their lives so we can kind of piece together what led them to this point where these two young kids were murdered and how their lives are intersected. We go back to our guy, Emmett, who is struggling with the rigors of, of new fatherhood. His mother is making it very clear that she, her parenting things are days are done and he must take control into his own hands and raise his own baby. Our guy, Brandon is picking up in order to cope with, the loss of his brother. He's keeping his mind busy by picking up extra work at the restaurant. What I haven't figured out is what's with him, what's with the tension with him, and I'm presuming this young lady is either the owner of the restaurant or the manager of the restaurant, but she does have authority <clears throat> Excuse me, over Brandon's boss, who is the head chef. And it's just something about their energy. He seems like he's cool. She looks like she's trying to be down. And I hope that in the future, as we watch the progression of Brandon and he gets to that point where he's rising up in the culinary field, that he's not put in a position where his manager is trying to give him some extra tips on the side, you feel me, and put him in a position that he's not ready for as head chef at the restaurant and, and essentially set him up for failure. Because sometimes we want to dream so bad, but we haven't really climbed the ladder and go through every run to make sure that we are equipped properly for the the position. You know, everybody, what do they say? Be careful what you ask for. You just might get it. But if you get it before you're ready, you're going to sabotage the whole thing and find yourself back at square one. Or you might find yourself completely thrust out of the goal that you were trying to achieve eventually. So Brandon's picking up extra time. His boss is giving him energy, and all he's trying to do is cook. Kevin is in fear, kind of like a 
one, one, one bright spot, you know, it's a pretty heavy episode as we watch our characters walk through life and who they are and what their life is like in this urban setting. But there was one, there were a few moments that were a little bit comedic or a little bit funny that we can relate to. As Kevin goes through school, we know that he has a crush on the one girl, but her cousin has been introduced and her cousin is like a larger kind of a bully who every time Kevin and his friends are caught looking at her young cousin, she puts herself in the mix and threatens to beat them up if they look at her cousin the wrong way. I thought that was pretty funny. It's pretty cute. We've seen that a long time where you have two girls and it never fails. There's always one that you like and then there's one that you don't like, but they're the ones that talk to you the most. And that's what young Kevin is experiencing during this episode. Switching back to our guy Emmett as he struggles through through the rigors of being a new father and just trying to figure it out. His mom's made it clear he needs to be a man and take care of his baby. He tries to go to work with the baby. The boss is not having it. It is during that time he comes into acquaintance with a man named Q. Q is pretty mysterious. He looks like a bad guy, kind of a swarthy, smoldering, sitting down, peeping out the situation, who offers Q some money. And just from the minute that they initiate contact, it's, it's clear this guy is bad news. He's the brother of of Emmett's boss, but it's just something about him that's not rubbing right. And then he comes out with this big money phone and says, hey, young blood, here's $100. Go find you a babysitter for this baby so you can get back to work because I'm all for a man bettering himself. Q, don't play us. We know you're bad news. I don't know if you the kingpin or what your role is in the hood, but the way he's just sitting around like that wearing vacation-looking shirts, I, I'm just, you should always fear anybody that's got like a cabana-looking shirt. That means they go down to the islands regularly, and it probably has something to do with the drugs. So Tommy Bahama wear on a brother in an urban setting, I'm going to assume he's over 50 or over at least over 40. I'm going to assume that that's the kingpin. So as Emmett takes the money in search of a babysitter, unsuccessfully locates someone, but what he does do is have this he has this real come to Jesus moment he's with the baby he doesn't know what he's doing the baby is sobbing and crying and he just cannot take it and he nearly leaves the child in the park leaves everything leaves him in a swing and walks away but it's during that moment he has some type of real come to Jesus moment and he said he decides that I'm not taking the easy way and just walking away and leaving the baby there to be by himself or be sucked into the system. He promises the baby that he will never, ever leave him again. And it, it, it was refreshing to see that he wanted to take that role, that high role, and be that good father, despite being ill-equipped or ill-ready or it came faster than he thought. But he has made a pledge, at least to the baby, that he's going to do the best that he can. He finally settles down after spending the baby, spending the day with the baby, gets the baby home, and... It's funny just to see this kid thrust into fatherhood early. We aren't even really clear how old he is. I'm guessing he's not over the age of 21. I'm going to guess anywhere between 17 and, and 19. But now he has a baby and now he has to be a man. Switching back to our, our officers, Officer Cruz, who is the officer, as I mentioned at the top of the show, that kind of has his, his pulse on what happens in the hood. He knows what everything that's going on. And he's just keeping an eye out on things. And he goes back to the scene where Kuji was standing over the body. As he gets out of his car, you know, he's watching the hood. It's clear there's drugs. 
stuff going on there, but he's not vice. He's a detective. He's murder police. So he's just trying to figure out what happened with this kid's murder. He gets over, goes to the scene, and finds that the dog is, in fact, there that Coogee said he would visit to feed. And as he's looking there at the dog, he sees there's a house kind of flanking the, the area where he's standing, where someone is standing in the window overlooking. It's clear, It's pretty clear that's a stash house. If somebody is on the window like that, just peeping out and surveying the whole neighborhood, it's definitely the stash house. People are sitting on it. Even if it's not the stash house, it's some activity going on there. And so from that, he has some type of um, awakening and he leaves the scene after he figures it out. But it's only after, after it's something about standing around in that crime scene that it's starting to come together what, what possibly could have happened. We switch back over to Jason Coogee's brother where we see him kind of sinking into a depression. He's flipping through pictures of his brother and he's sad and he's crying and the struggle is so apparent on his face. What does he do? Does he take vengeance for his brother? Does he take the high route? His wife comes in and makes him promise that he's not going to do any hood shit as she calls it to reconcile what has happened to his young brother. She makes him promise. He says he promises, but he's got a brother that's that's dead and he's emotional and it's just still too fresh at this point. We get another look at our, our bad guy or what is seeming to be a bad guy, Q, making a visit to. I'm not sure who this guy is that he visited. I think he said he was a councilman or something like that. It's clear that the councilman is afraid of him. He's probably taken some elite, some drug money, political campaign contributions from him. And because of that, he's in the pocket and he goes over there and he says he wants to know some information about the boy Jason. If anything comes in, he wants to know more about the murder, et cetera. I'm guessing at this point that the stash house that we saw is something, some, some kind of way over Q's dominion. And he probably didn't want to kill the boy. He makes it clear that he kind of knows who the family is. And he's just trying to figure out what happened and why it was going down on his turf, because it has to be his turf. It's the only reason why he would be interested in a boy who wasn't in the in the mix being murdered. So I'm guessing he knows the family, something went awry, he's trying to air it out and wants to know what's going on, but the councilman is definitely afraid, clearly doesn't want him there, further leading us to believe that he's some sort of kingpin. Ronnie for the first time, lays his eyes on young Kevin since the murder happened. He's trying to chase him down to talk to him. Kevin, of course, is afraid, and he bounces out. And that old man is not catching that teenage boy. And so he goes into hiding, goes home, and he's kind of afraid. I don't know what to make of Kevin. Kevin knows something is up, but he it doesn't seem like he's just cowering in fear. He seems like he he's smart. But he has just enough street smarts to know how to evade this situation, know that he should have some pause. But he's not super duper frightened or hiding now. He's still walking around like regular. <clears throat> Excuse me. Detective Cruz, our good cop, goes and visits Brandon at works and asks him some questions about why Coogee was over there by the drug house. Like he's just trying to pick it, put it together. Jason gets really upset and so he backs down and leaves him alone. All the while, bad cop is watching him trying to figure out what's going on. He just wants to paint it all the same way, just some hood, hood on hood crime. He wants to put it to bed and refuses to believe that it's anything more than that. Brandon 
after the meeting, goes and visits Kevin. How does he know where Kevin lives? But anyway, he goes to visit little Kevin to make sure that he has correctly identified the person that killed his brother. And Kevin is clearly a bit more street than the older Brandon. You know, he's a big fan of the N-word and almost challenges Brandon. Like, he has enough street in him. Like, why aren't you getting street vengeance? I don't have to walk here around here afraid. If you take care of business, you're supposed to go and off the dude that I know killed your brother. But why are you having some pause? Because now you're putting my life in jeopardy because I've told you what happened and you're not doing what you need to do to help me out of the situation. And so now that once again, Kevin is now having that struggle or Brandon is now having that struggle, what does he do? Does he take matters in his own hand and get vengeance for Kuji? Or does he listen to his wife? Does he go to the police? Does he do nothing? What does he do? His wife's telling him don't do it. The young boy's telling him to do it. The cops are coming at him and his mother, she can't look at herself in the mirror and she's drowning in addiction and he's just in a terrible spot. And he's weak and he's fragile and he loved his brother. And it's just a tough situation for him to be in because he clearly is a person who's had to take care of things around in the household, in the family for, for a long, long time. Ronnie still wants this fairy tale of getting back with Tracy, but he realized he doesn't have any money. So he sells the gun to the neighborhood fence to try to figure out, you know, just to get some money up so that he can um, live this fantasy. He wants to live with Tracy. It's, that's not going to last long. He wants it too bad, and Tracy is cool for right now because she thinks he's gotten vengeance for her son, and so she opened herself up to him physically and her home, and now they're going to play how she sends him out to buy some groceries so they can have a great dinner and start continue to play this fairy tale. But the fairy tale gets derailed when Cruz runs into Ronnie and tells him, I hate to break it to you, fam, but... The boy that you killed didn't kill your boy. And it's a pivotal scene as we watch Ronnie struggle to accept this message that he killed the wrong person. So it's threatening to totally unravel this whole new fairy tale, this life with Tracy, the proposed vengeance for his son. And now you have the knowledge that you have killed an innocent person, a child at that. And so that's where we left with our characters. We have Ronnie, who knows he's killed the wrong person. We've got young Kevin, who's looking out for his schoolgirl crush's older cousin that has pinned him down and licked his face and made it clear, her intentions clear, that she really likes him and not her cousin. We've got Detective Cruz, who really wants to know what's going on and has his his hand on the pulse of the hood. We've got... Emmett, who is struggling to be a father. We've got this new character, Quentin, who's like the neighborhood bad guy or the neighborhood kingpin. We have a lot for on the shoulders of our characters as we find out their backstories that led to this moment where their lives have become intertwined. Basically, normal day-to-day life things, things that are happening to them in tandem to these murders taking place. We still haven't fully seen the story of Jason yet, the first dead person of the episode, the boy who is the neighborhood athlete, who had a mother who loved him, and why was he outside what was clearly a stash house? We still haven't figured that whole part of the story yet, and I think as 
the season goes on, it's all kind of going to come to a head of why he was at that stash house. Cruz has so much mea culpa about him and so much sadness about him. It makes me almost wonder if he, the boy was working undercover or doing something for the police. It just seems like a lot of unresolved motions, and there just seems no reason for a boy who was an athlete and was leading a different path to be outside of a stash house to be murdered in the first place. If it was a stray bullet or a mistaken identity, probably some of those elements would have been revealed to, our, to us in the first episode, but we just don't know. Why was Jason there? We know why Kuji was there, and we're no, finding out things about our other characters, but the pivotal key to this whole conundrum is why was he there? Why did he choose? Why was he there at that moment at that time to be killed? And that's probably what we will find out as the season unfolds. And that's it. That's all I have for this week's recap of The Shy. Thank you for listening. Make sure you follow me at Giandra LaBeouf on Twitter. That's J-E-A-N-D-R-A-L-E-B-E-A-U-S on Twitter. Make sure you subscribe to Bad Culture TV. All these episodes will be downloaded and added to the Bad Culture TV YouTube channel so that you can listen to them or you can go back and listen to episode one. And after this episode two, did I get it right? Did I get it wrong? Maybe so. I'd love to talk to you. If you want to call into the show anytime, 718-508-9852. Talk to me on Twitter. And once again, shout out to our sponsors, Undeterred. Make sure you visit undeterred.bigcartel.com. Please, please, please visit Undeterred and pick up one of their signature statements. Their signature statement making teeth, are you undeterred? Please pick one up today. I'll be back next week as we recap episode three of The Shy. Shout out to Lena Waithe and to Common for bringing the show back to life. It's very clear that we're going to become very invested in the lives of our characters. Have a great week, and I'll see you next Sunday.